Well, please do have your Bibles open. Um, still on that passage or on uh, your phones, if you're using your phones, uh, to follow uh, the Scripture. So we've had a geography test and a maths test, maths test in the uh, missions update. Now for a theology test. This passage will stretch us in a good way, I think, um, as we come to look at how the Lord was working in his church in AD 33, after Pentecost, this new birthing of a church following Christ. And it's clear that the tide is turning here in Acts chapter 4 through to chapter 7 uh, and the start of chapter 8. The tide is turning for this newly birthed church. The enemy is afoot. There's persecution. There's going to be an execution. There's opposition. There's hostility, both from outside the community, and there's division and greed within the community as well. We see both spiritual renewal, therefore, and sinful destruction. This is a satanic counterattack that's taking place to derail gospel growth. And today, I think we're all too aware, aren't we, of the damage of sinful destruction in Christ's church. I was just thinking with great sadness of um, Soul Survivor Church in Watford, uh, where friends of mine had worked uh, and been part of the team there. It's had decades of vibrant Bible-centered outreach and discipleship. It, it was a church that nurtured music leaders like Matt Redman, uh, Beth Croft, and Tim Hughes. And yet their senior leader, Mike Pilavachi, has been found guilty of abuse of power relating to his ministry, which has resulted in people being traumatized, hurt, uh, their faith in tatters. The Daily Telegraph being one of the lead papers to investigate this abuse in the church. Uh, Julie Royce, she's an American journalist who um, is a Christian, a committed Christian, and her mission, her work, is to uncover the cover-ups in churches. Her her mission is to report the truth and restore the truth. It's a very courageous work. Her website, The Roy's Report, is a litany of church failures. So here are just a few of the headlines on the homepage. Australian megachurch pastor Cory Turner admits sexual misconduct with fellow pastor. Woman claims Mike Bickle, who's the founder of the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, sexually abused her when she was 14. Calvin University president resigns after misconduct complaint with inappropriate communications. These are just a few of the investigations she's working on. Now, with headlines like this, it's no wonder that the corruption and sin in the church is a significant reason, isn't it, why people reject the gospel of Jesus. G.K. Chesterton uh, commented this, the greatest argument against the truth of Christianity is the lives of Christians. How can good people forgiven by Jesus do such terrible, selfish things? Is Jesus really in charge of his church? And yet the answer we see here in Acts, in this section from chapters 4 to 7, is is yes, Jesus is in charge. His Holy Spirit is sovereign. He is active amongst his believers. There's spirit-fueled prayer. There's generosity. There's courageous preaching. 
And he enables Christians to stand firm in each case. He protects his church. You see, Satan will not overcome his purposes. And isn't it interesting that Luke, the historian, the doctor at work here, writing the book of Acts for us, is prepared to give the warts and all view of the church. There's no cover-up. He puts in the bad bits. He gives the warts and all portrait of this church in Jerusalem. There's no embarrassment that it's a twisted mess at times. That money can really ruin people's hearts. Luke holds up a realistic mirror to the church and shows God's commitment to root out sin. And praise the Lord, he has continued to do that over two millennia. And he will not stop doing that until the time Christ returns. So today is a wake-up call for us today as a church to take hypocrisy and holiness seriously. So let's look at the good news. The good news that's there in the first part of that reading from verse 32 to 37. The real deal. We're given a picture here of authenticity, the generous church displayed. Now, it's clear from the amount of YouTube clips that you, you can find on spotting fake stuff that no one likes getting scammed. There's a whole genre of people showing you how to spot fake, whether it's AirPods, trainers, whatever it is, on YouTube. Usually coming from the fact that they've been stung by this. And the same is true when it comes to gospel living. There's authentic followers of Jesus, and there are fake followers of Jesus. Jesus himself makes this clear in the Sermon on the Mount. We looked at some of these verses last week, but here's another um, clip from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verses 17 to 20. Jesus says, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Pretty straightforward. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down in his kingdom and thrown into the fire. There's judgment. There's a weighing of work. Thus, by their fruit, Jesus says, you will recognize them. He's giving his disciples a way of discerning what's good, what's bad, what's in line with his will, what isn't. And the good fruit a disciple produces are the actions and attitudes that Jesus has already spoken about in his Sermon on the Mount. His expectation is that people will see a difference. That's why he uses another picture in Matthew 5. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Yeah, so your actions, your attitudes, the way you live is a bright light. It's supposed to be seen. It's good fruit. And Luke is keen to, to show us the difference the church was making. Look at verse 32 in, in chapter 4. What's going on? All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. What a terrific snapshot that is of unity and care. And we've heard this before, back in chapter 2, verses 44 to 45, where we read there, all the believers had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who was in need. Now, Luke isn't repeating himself just to fill up a bit of space and, and sort of bump his word count. He's showing this is consistent. 
It wasn't a one-off. It's continuing. The outworking of God's Spirit is that this is the normal lifestyle Christians have. They really do love their neighbor. And that meant that life together was therefore sacrificial. It was selfless. They weren't thinking about what they could protect and hold back for themselves, but what they could use to bless others. Isn't that a community you'd want to be part of? Now, you might be wondering, as, as well as some Christians have it, is this an early form of communism? Is this a, a political manifesto here? Especially when in verse 32 it says that no one claimed that, that any of their possessions was their own. Well, what was this? Is this enforced from above? No. Well, what's in view here is the attitude again. It's not a law or a regulation. Each person's heart had been so affected by God that each person saw what they had as something for the good of others. Can you see that change of perspective? They weren't forced to give things away. It wasn't a group tax. The phrase from time to time just shows it was as needs arose. It was voluntary. Barnabas in verse 36 just gives something away because he wants to probably to encourage someone who might have been going through a difficult time. Peter makes it explicit to Ananias in chapter 5, verse 4. He wasn't obliged to sell his property. He wasn't called or forced to give anything away. So it isn't from on high. It isn't some political agenda. It's not communism in that form. This is far more powerful. It's coming from the Lord and changed hearts. You can't stop that. But where did this change come from? Have a look back at verse 31 um, in the reading we had last week as we were looking at this passage, and we're going to look at this believer's prayer on Wednesday in our prayer meeting. But verse 31 tells us, after they prayed, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. You see, boldness is the authentic mark of the Holy Spirit's work in people's lives. And God's Spirit is not a spirit of fear. It's the spirit of adoption, of sonship, of daughters and sons coming into the family of God. And Paul in Romans 8 makes this very clear, that the mark of living by the Spirit is fearlessness. And that fearlessness comes by being assured that we're sons and daughters of God. And that bold fearlessness worked itself out in two ways in word and deed, here in Acts 4. So in verse 31, they spoke the word of God boldly. We looked at that last week. They were prepared as Christians to take a risk to share the good news of Jesus. And then in verse 33, the apostles set the example, leading the way by continuing to testify about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, this was the very thing the Sanhedrin, that Jewish council in charge, had commanded and threatened them not to do. That was the one thing from the meeting, having been in prison, that came out as the clear action point. Don't talk about Jesus and the resurrection. And they carry on doing it. There's boldness. And secondly, we see this boldness in the sacrificial lifestyle. This generosity, this giving away of their possessions. It's the Holy Spirit who helps the Christians give their wealth away. And that takes courage, doesn't it? That takes boldness. 
When you think about a lack of generosity, it is connected to being fearful. The more Christians are assured of God's love for ourselves as their never-failing and all-powerful Father who has their needs at his, on his heart, the more spiritually confident we will become if we're thinking of that. The more secure, the more fearless we'll be which means becoming less hung up about what we need. It's an act of courage and fearlessness to decide to consistently give, say, I don't know, 10% of your income each month to support church and to support gospel ministries. That takes courage. It's a risk. It's a risk in the sense that that personal financial cushion you want might be much smaller. Or there's courage in quite simply deciding there's less for you to spend on your own comfort and treats. It takes courage. Generosity and intentional meeting of the needs of others, therefore, was a really powerful sign that the Holy Spirit was at work in this church in AD 33 in Jerusalem. It was a demonstration of God's grace and power. And it remains a demonstration of His grace and power today in a society that is still hung up on what we have, what we want, what we need, what we're getting next. And you know that's not just at society, that's at the church. It needs rooting out here. I've lost count of the times I've heard about the preachers and ministries that are shipwrecked by financial scandal and greed, where people peddle the gospel through, whether it's global album sales, it's TV shows, it's investing in luxury homes and private jets. It's, it's abhorrent. It's wrong. It shames Christ's work. It brings his holy name into disrepute. But the opposite is amazing, isn't it? The Holy Spirit who inspires courageous generosity. Just think for a minute how, as a community, we have the privilege of making a difference by using the resources God has given us to spread his good news and love. We heard something of that in the missions update with Namdi. As a result of your giving, of our giving season together, we've been able to increase support to nine mission partners, six overseas, three here in the UK. That's, that's for crucial work, whether it's Bible translation taking place in Leipzig, whether it's church planting in India and Turkey, whether it's the radio broadcasts and the women's ministry in AJK. This is fantastic. The Protestant reformer John Calvin, when he preached through Acts, um, He took five years to do it, and he wrote a commentary. In this passage, he said, We must have hearts that are harder than iron if we are not moved by reading this narrative. In those days, the believers gave abundantly of what was their own. We in our day, now he's writing in the 1500s, 1549 to 1554 was when he was preaching on this. We in our day are content, not just jealously retain what we possess, but in our day, it is the lust to purchase that reigns supreme. Wow. 500 years on. Bang on relevant. We need this work of the Holy Spirit. 
So let us keep asking the Holy Spirit to work on our hearts, to be more fearless in our generosity to one another, to the needs of the city. With our words, let's talk about the power of God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, specifically the resurrection of Jesus, of his lordship. With conviction, with thoughtfulness, with our deeds as a church that demonstrate his resurrection power. These are big prayers, aren't they? We need his strength, don't we? We need his help for this. Just pause now. What is it God has entrusted to you? Where is he calling you to greater courage right now? Hold on to that. Because here is the challenge. If we've seen the generosity in the genuine article, we're shown a deadly fake. Here in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 5, this episode with Ananias and Sapphira is shocking in two, at least two ways. Because it is the stark contrast of the generosity and care that we've just seen. And, and contrasted especially with pastorally-hearted Joseph from Cyprus, whose reputation meant he got a new name. He was nicknamed Barnabas by the, the apostles. And Barnabas becomes a key figure up to chapter 15 of Acts. He is an encourager of mission. He's an encourager of the church. He sticks his neck out on the block and goes after Paul, the guy who was killing Christians, to bring him in to enable more gospel ministry. Not just as an encouragement to Paul, but an encouragement to the church. He's the guy every church would want on their team. He would be here, nine o'clock going, show me the exam tables, unfolding as many as possible to help as many as possible. He's that kind of guy. And ironically, Sapphira in Aramaic, that name means beautiful. And her husband's name, Ananias, in Hebrew means God is gracious. Sounds fantastic, doesn't it? What an aspiration. But sadly, Acts 5 shows that's far from the truth. But it's also shocking, not only because of the contrast, but because of the severity of judgment over something, let's be honest, that at first glance looks pretty minor, doesn't it? What? They're both dead over this? But there's nothing minor about this incident that warns us of the insidious nature of sin and the disruption it brings to God's mission. On first reading, it looks like Barnabas and the married couple are doing exactly the same thing, doesn't it? Did you pick that up? They've sold stuff. They've given money away. They're doing that in front of the apostles. Did you hear the repetition of feet as well? As I was studying this, you, just, you go through. It's mentioned about five times. Feet here, feet there. Lay something at this feet. He drops dead at their feet. It's, it, you know, you've got this eyewitness account here. This, these are memorable details. People can picture them taking their gifts and placing them down publicly as a way of saying, this is yours now. Honor and respect, use it, use it for good. People are recalling what happened. It's unforgettable. But Peter discerns something different. Christ's enemy is at work. Look at verse 3. Just as Jesus, this is interesting, Jesus called out the satanic influence on Peter 
when he rebuked Jesus back in Mark 8 for saying that Jesus must be rejected, suffer, die, and rise again, in Mark 8, 31 to 33, it's Peter who's saying, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter's words were a complete derailing of God's ultimate promise to bless many people through salvation. And here Peter does the same. Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You see, Satan inflamed Ananias' and Sapphira's desires to put themselves as number one. But it wasn't holding back money that seemed to be the issue. Did you see how Peter made that clear in his, his, his conversation with Ananias? What does he say? Um, you weren't under any pressure to sell the land or donate the money, in other words. Wasn't the money at your disposal, is how he puts it. You could, they could have kept what they wanted, what they needed. The apostles weren't dictating. They weren't saying, you've got to give this much now. They hadn't ordered them to sell the property. No, the problem here, the deep problem, is spelled out in verses 3 to 4. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. You've not just lied to human beings, but to God. Wow. This simple action, which we might think, eh, it's not very serious, is showing a fundamental mammoth rebellion against the Creator God. And the word in the Greek for what we've got there is two English words, kept back. The word in the Greek there means misappropriate. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it means to steal. It's also the same word used in the Greek Old Testament in Joshua 7, which is an interesting incident where Achan, who's one of the army officers for Israel, uh, an army captain who stole money and clothing from Jericho and kept it for himself, which was something that the Lord had expressly said, there's none of that. When you take Jericho, everything is given over to me. You're not taking any money, any goods, any sort of recompense for your, your fighting. No, everything belongs to me. In other words, a married couple acted as if they were giving all the money from the property sale to the church. Here it is. You, you've got everything. And this was the dishonesty and hypocrisy. Perhaps having seen Barnabas, they aspired to be like him. Or even more likely, they wanted the credit and honor of being known as sacrificial givers. If he, if he got the nickname the encourager, I wonder what we'll get. But they wanted to do that without the cost. Without the cost of giving everything. Rather than being motivated by God's love, they were looking for people's approval. They lied to the church leaders and to God in pursuit of a big reputation. This was unashamed play-acting, and the church was their stage. In 2004, an Oxford Uni engineering student, a guy called Matthew Richardson, bluffed his way to China, posing as an economics professor, giving advanced lectures in, uh, to business PhD students in Beijing. Now, Mr. Richardson had been invited to give those lectures 
And even though it wasn't his subject, he thought he could pull it off. And he made his way through the first day and, and, and a half, I think, a day and a half of lectures by reading from an A-level textbook. And that seemed to work okay. But as he got near the end of the book, he lost his nerve, he bunked the rest of the day off and flew back to England the next day. He, he still had the guts. This is Oxford Uni for you. I think they enjoyed it, but it was hard to tell. <laughs> I received some compliments during the lunch break. But what had happened was that the Chinese university had wrongly um, thought they had invited Professor Matthew Richardson from New York Uni Business School. That's who they wanted, and they got Matthew Richardson, the guy who does engineering at Oxford and thinks he can pull this off. He thought he could play the part and get paid for it. But there was a comeuppance. It, it's exposed. He's, he was facing legal action. He thought he could play the part and get paid. And in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira are playing, acting at being devout, generous believers. The writer T.S. Eliot in his story, The Cocktail Party, wrote this, half of the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. Isn't that fascinating? And the need to be important, the need to be popular, the need to be seen and known by many fuels spiritual hypocrisy. Isn't that a killer here in the church? The sin was so serious and the judgment from the Lord Jesus so sudden because of the depth of that sin that looks so small, because the deceit and the hypocrisy is a killer. The painful irony is that the most important being in the universe, God the Father, Son, and Spirit, sees us fully. The giving of the gift to the church is ultimately done in front of Him. He sees the generosity. He sees our motive. He receives our work, our gifts. Now, I've re referred to this before uh, in, in terms of our work, and it comes very clearly in Colossians about being seen by God. As the Apostle Paul put it, it's, it's, we're working for an audience of one, is a way to sum up the biblical the view on this. Paul put it like this in Colossians, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you're serving. That's in Colossians 3. Now, um, Carson uh, Ventz, the, the guy who's on the screen here, um, who's currently the LA Rams quarterback, when he was at the Philadelphia Eagles, in 2016 to 20, he led the team to win their, their first ever Super Bowl in 2018. Carson set up a, a foundation called AO1. AO1. He has AO1 stitched onto his boots. He's got a tattoo of it on his wrist. And what does this mean? Well, as he explains, it means we're playing. He's playing for an audience of one. He goes on to explain, when the lights go on and all the eyes are fixed on us, our eyes are fixed on him. 
Jesus, the creator of the universe. It's not just a slogan. It's a lifestyle. Living for him, playing for him, and giving him all the glory. Win, lose, or draw, I play for an audience of one. What about you? And that is the heart of the problem here in Acts 5. When the audience becomes anyone other than the loving Heavenly Father we have in Christ, things are open to abuse and corruption. In their spiritual pride, Ananias and Sapphira had rejected the truth that is God they are serving. For them, Christianity just meant it was a way of earning their reputation and a sense of worth through their achievements. They hadn't grasped the gospel message of free grace to guilty sinners is truly for them. Imagine what would happen if they progressed into church leadership with strategic responsibility and this hidden, deep-rooted sin continued unchecked. What would happen? Their influence would have had made the church a place where you can say one thing and do something else, where accountability and confessing sin before God was not as important as reputation and what people think of us. It would become quickly become a community where your own desires could be dressed up in religious, holy-sounding words, where leaders try to use the people of God for their own ends rather than serving God's family. Can you see how dangerous that sin of hypocrisy is to the health and life of Jesus' church? It is the refusal to come to Jesus in honest repentance and truly say, all I need is you, your love, your forgiveness, your word. Please change me. Please show me more of your glory. And that's where the antidote really lies. So here in verses 5 and 11, particularly how 11... I hope you sort of left with a bit of a cliffhanger as the passage was read. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about this. But this is the antidote. Luke's repeated this great fear twice, verse 5 and verse 11. And we've heard this fear before in chapter 2, verse 43. It's an awe at the power of God at work. It's a proper reverent sense of his greatness, as we sung earlier, and our smallness. Of an understanding that this God sees us as we truly are, we're exposed. As Archbishop Cramner in his Book of Common Prayer put it, he is the the one, the Lord, he is the one to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. Now, to a rebel who wants nothing to do with God, that is bad news. That is terrifying. It is something to run from. It is something to hide from. But rightly understood, the awe of God will always lead us to joy because God in his love and compassion came to earth in Jesus as our Savior to make peace, to reconcile us, to forgive our sin, our hypocrisy, our lies, our pride, our selfish actions that flow from that sin. And as we hear of Ananias and Sapphira, we recognize it could so easily be us. When we try to make others think we're more spiritual than we are, what would that look like today? It could include creating impressions that we are a people of prayer when we're not, making it look like we've got it all together when life is chaotic, 
promoting the idea that we're generous or hardworking when we're spending more time thinking about how we can treat ourselves. When we misrepresent our service for the gospel or spiritual work, inflate it when that's far from reality. When a preacher like me urges people toward deeper devotion to God, which could imply my life is all sorted and I'm doing it, just follow me. When the evangelist calls people to holy living but is embezzling ministry funds into their private account. It's a wake-up call, isn't it? It should cut us deep. With the Holy Spirit's help, we can take an honest look at our lives. We can ask, are we truthful people? Lord, change the deceit. Am I engaging in exaggeration about myself? Are we promoting a spiritual deception about our own commitments? Try and make ourselves look better and feel better. Perhaps it means starting those relationships with one or two people who really speak into your life, a spouse, a friend, someone in your life group, someone who is trusted, someone who can be honest, someone you want to be challenged by. And then just lay this before the Lord in prayer. Repent of our sin. Rely on His grace. Remove habits of deception so that truth is the habit we live with. And thirdly, let's promise that with the Lord's help, the power of His Holy Spirit today, that we will consciously refrain from lying in all its forms. That God would make us a church, a people of truth. to show that he is the one who's in charge. The audience of one who has saved us and called us his own. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would show us our need of you again this morning. Show us our habits, the things that we might do to deceive probably ourselves, to put ourselves in the light with others that looks a bit better. That deception, we say enough, we're done with it. Lord, forgive us. We renounce any lies that we are using to make others think we are more spiritual than we really are. Cleanse us of all dishonesty, Lord Jesus. Create in us a new desire, a renewed desire to be encouragers, to be generous, to live in the fearlessness that comes from knowing we are daughters and sons in Christ Jesus, saved by his perfect work alone. And help us, Father. Help us, Father, to walk in your light because your light is what the world needs to see. Not our light, your light through us. All for Jesus' name and glory. Your will be done, your kingdom come. Amen.